We need to study whose lives? Who's the first one mentioned? Enoch. And who else? John the Baptist. We've studied John the Baptist here before. Tonight I want to study about Enoch. Enoch. He who was translated to heaven without seeing death. Has anybody else ever been translated to heaven without seeing death? Who? Elijah. Anybody else? That's all. So far, two men have gotten out of this world alive. Will anybody else ever get out alive? Yes. We believe the 144,000 have that great destiny, that high privilege. Is that right? Think of it, friends. What happened before to only two men is going to happen now to thousands of people. Are any of them around now? We hope so, don't we? Yes. We remember that wonderful appeal from the messenger of the Lord. Let us strive with all our powers to be among the 144,000. So you and I have a special reason for studying the life and experience of Enoch. Is that right? Very well. Now let us go to Hebrews, the 11th chapter, and notice what is said about Enoch. There aren't a great many things in the Bible about Enoch, but there's enough. So that we can get a picture of his work and experience and apply it to our own. Hebrews 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was translated, that he should not see death. And was not found, because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. What was God's attitude toward Enoch? He was pleased with it. Did Enoch know it? Yes, he had this testimony. When did he find it out? Before he was translated. Right here in this world, Enoch pleased God and knew it. That's a wonderful experience, isn't it? Now, we can have, we must have the experience that Enoch had. Gospel Workers 54. After quoting this text I've read from Hebrews, to such communion God is calling us. As was Enoch's, so must be their holiness of character who shall be redeemed from among men at the Lord's second coming. Will you have an experience like Enoch? Well, you will unless one of two things happens to you. You'll have an experience like Enoch's unless you are lost or unless you die before Jesus comes. Is that correct? Yes. Well, I don't want either one to happen to me, do you? No. Not a one of us wants the first to happen to us. Uh, that is, we don't want to be lost. And I'm sure that we cherish the hope of translation. Of course, I recognize that it's all in God's hand, whether we rest in the grave or whether we are alive to be translated. But we are invited to cherish that hope. Make that our goal, our objective. Is that right? To such communion God is calling us. As was Enoch's, so must be their holiness of character, who shall be redeemed from among men at the Lord's second coming. Now we will go back to Genesis, and notice what this first book of the Bible says about this man. The fifth chapter of Genesis. His father was Jared, according to the 19th verse of Genesis 5. And when Enoch was 65 years old, he begat Methuselah. You know, it's interesting, there are many people in the world that know more about Methuselah than they do about Enoch. What was Methuselah famous for? Yes, his age. 
But I think the the end of Enoch is far more interesting than the end of Methuselah, don't you? Yes. Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. What does it mean, he was not? He wasn't here in this world anymore. He left this world. We're told that people hunted for him. They couldn't find him. He was not. Just as somebody goes to a home. Somebody comes to the door, so-and-so here? No, he isn't here. Where is he? He's gone. He's gone. Enoch was gone. Where did he go? He went with God. Somehow I've liked the, the story the way the little boy told it. That Enoch and God used to walk together. And sometimes they take long walks together. One day they got so far away from Enoch's home that God said to Enoch, Enoch, it's closer to where I live. Come on home with me. Ah, oh, dear one, such a walk with God. Such a walk with God. I want to walk with God, don't you? Now, in Gospel Workers 51, I read, Enoch's walk with God was not in a trance or a vision, but in all the duties of his daily life. Oh, did Enoch have any duties to do? Oh, how could he find time for that? Why, he was busy walking with God. Well, that's where he walked with God, Enoch's walk with God was not in a trance or a vision, but in all the duties of his daily life. He did not become a hermit, shutting himself entirely from the world. What is a hermit, anyway? Well, back in the early ages of Christianity, not the very first, but after the apostasy came in, there were men that had the idea that the way to be holy was to get off in a cave somewhere and do nothing but just read and pray and read and pray. Hermits. They got clear away from all society. Out in the desert. Way out in the mountains. And Enoch did not become a what? A hermit. He didn't become a hermit. Well, I wonder if we should become hermits. What in the world are we doing in the mountains then? Well, we'll study that. But Enoch did not become a hermit, shutting himself entirely from the world. In the family and in his intercourse with men as a husband and father, a friend, a citizen, he was the steadfast, unwavering servant of God. So Enoch was a worker. Was Enoch a preacher? Yes, we're given a view of his preaching over in the book of Jude, in the New Testament, next to the last book of the Bible, the 14th verse. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, that is the people he's been talking about, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. What was Enoch's great subject according to this text? The second coming of Christ. Is that right? Yes. Well, what would he be called today? What kind of a preacher? An Adventist preacher. Right. Way back there, his eye was focused upon that grand event, the coming of our Lord with all the angels of glory, to reward his saints and execute the judgment upon the wicked. 
Well, no wonder he set forth as a type for you and me to study. We have the same message to bear that he had to bear. Is that right? Now, what do you gather from this verse which I have just read in Jude as to the conditions around him? What kind of people were there? Ungodly. You notice how that word is spoken of again and again? Ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. Yes, it was an ungodly world. In fact, if you want to get a picture of how wicked it became in Enoch's time, just go over a page here in Genesis, and you will note that it became so wicked, according to the sixth chapter, that God finally said that he saw that the imagination of men's hearts was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 5. And the flood had to come upon the world as the consequence. The judgments of God came upon that ungodly race of people. How many got out alive? How many? Eight. Is God going to destroy this world again? This time, instead of being a deluge of water, it'll be a deluge of what? Fire. Is anybody going to get out alive? Yes. Yes. The righteous are going to be taken out of this world and preserved as Noah was preserved. And Enoch's message is appropriate for this hour as it was back there. Now, I cannot study with you tonight everything about Enoch, but there are two things especially that I want you to notice. First, I want you to notice separation in Enoch's life. He walked with God. He didn't walk with the world. He walked in the world, but not with the world. Amos, the third chapter and the third verse, God asks a question. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Can they? No, they can't. Can't do it. If you want to go to Washington and I want to go to New Orleans, we cannot move together. Impossible. If you're headed for the North Pole and I'm headed for the South Pole, we just have to say goodbye. To walk together, we must be agreed. And the fact that Enoch walked with God is evidence that he agreed with God. That's what holiness is. Holiness is agreement with God. That's all it is. That's all it needs to be. If you and God agree then you're living the life of holiness. If you don't agree, that isn't holiness. No matter what ecstasy of feeling, no matter how men may be able to shout and sing and pray and praise, if their lives are not in agreement with God, that's not holiness, is it? No. Holiness is agreement with God. Now, I want to study this life of holiness that Enoch lived. What he felt led of God to do in order to attain and maintain that life of holiness. Let's look at the background a little. You remember that in the beginning, according to the early chapters of Genesis, God had placed Adam and Eve, our first parents, in the Garden of Eden. He gave them his law. They broke it were cast out from the garden, put in this world to learn by hard toil the lesson of real repentance and obedience. It was the grace of God that would enable them to do it. But my friends, the grace of God is not a substitute for the individual effort of the individual man, he must choose. His efforts without God can never save him. He can be saved by grace and grace alone. But oh, that men might know and learn fully the lesson. If all there is to this plan of salvation is for men to say, I believe, and that's it, that's done, that's over with now, why in the world 
Weren't Adam and Eve allowed to stay in the Garden of Eden? Didn't they get sorry for sin there in the Garden? Yes. Didn't they hear about the promise of the Redeemer? Yes. Didn't they accept it? Yes. But with all that, God said, I'm sorry, but you'll have to go. And oh, how they pled. Oh, how they pled. They could only stay in that garden. And was it a good place or a bad place? Good place. But God said no. And it seems to me I see the tears falling down God's face. As he has to take his children and lead them out of that beautiful garden home. Out into a world that was to more and more bear the curse of sin. Ah, think of it, friends. Sweat and toil. Thorns and briars. These are part of the lesson book in which you and I are to learn how terrible sin is and what a long road it is back. Not that we can earn our way, oh no. Jesus pays the price. And he pays it all. But the price that he paid is for the purpose of giving you and me an experience into which we must enter, my friends. And that's the thing that I want to study with you in the experience of Eden. Well, now I come on down. You remember that Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Abel was righteous. Cain pretended to be. But he didn't do what God said. He had his own ideas, just like a lot of people today. You remember that as the result, Cain finally became so angry because Abel was accepted and he wasn't, that he rose up and smote his brother and slew him. He was the first murderer. Abel was the first martyr. Think of it. Two first boys ever born in this world. One was the first murderer. The other was the first martyr. Well, you remember that as a result of that, Cain fled away from Eden. He went way off into another part of the world. And there, the Bible says that he built a city. That's the first use of the word city in the Bible. Did you know that? That's the first use of it. That's the fourth chapter of Genesis and the 17th verse. Now the Lord gave Adam and Eve another son to take Abel's place, and that boy's name was Seth. And as he grew up, he was righteous like Abel. He gladdened his parents' heart by walking in the commandments of God. And his descendants were given the glorious privilege of maintaining the truth of God. Now, at the head of those two great divisions stood those two sons of Adam, Cain and Seth. I want you to notice something very interesting. Cain, now I'm reading from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 81. Cain withdrew from his father's household. He had first chosen his occupation as a tiller of the soil, and he now founded a city, calling it after the name of his eldest son. He'd gone out from the presence of the Lord, cast away the promise of the restored Eden, to seek his possessions and enjoyment in the earth under the curse of sin, thus standing at the head of that great class of men who worship the God of this world. You can read this story here in these early chapters of Genesis 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, the results of that. Now those were great men. Never get the idea that they were some half-ape-like looking creation like these cavemen and Stone Age men that you see pictured by the evolutionists. That is a bunch of nonsense. The people that lived back there were noble, majestic-looking beings, more than twice the size, the height of people living today. And listen, 
we are told that there was more arts and sciences lost at the time of the flood than men know today. They could do all kinds of things. They had wonderful wisdom. They were great men. The sinners and the righteous, both. Why, they were descended from Adam and Eve that had been made in the image of God. They didn't know. They didn't know disease like we know it today. They didn't know degeneracy and imbecility and deformity and all that sort of thing. No, my friend. They were great men. One, any one of those men back there would be a wonder if he were turned loose today. Not merely physically as a giant, but mentally, intellectually. He'd be looked upon as a wonder. He would be a wonder. But let me tell you something. Being wonderful is not enough. The more wonderful a man is, the worse it is for him if he's in the way of Cain. The way of sin. The way of the devil. And that's the way most of the men left, went on. Now, notice. While Cain was building his city and those that followed after him were developing these arts and sciences that made them so great, it says Abel had led a pastoral life dwelling in tents and booths, and the descendants of Seth followed the same course, and counting themselves strangers and pilgrims on the earth, seeking a better country that is in heaven. Abel dwelt in what? Tents or booths. What is a booth? Why, it's a house made with vines or trees and arbors, an arbor. Is that the kind they had in Eden? Yes, only they were all living there. Maybe some of these were, I don't know. My point is, they were not extravagant, man-made structures in which Millions of dollars were piled up. No. Cain went to his city program, where the works of man were continually exalted. Abel and later Seth led out in a pastoral country life. For some time, the two classes remained separate. The race of Cain, spreading from the place of their first settlement, dispersed over the plains and valleys where the children of Seth had dwelt. What happened? Why, these Canaanites moved right in where the Sethites had been living. Well, what did they do? Did they say, well, look here. We've got all our investment here and everything is like we wanted. It's too bad we have all these neighbors around us that are so wicked and and diabolical in their attitude, their conversation, and their influence. It's hard on the children, but nothing to do. We were here first, and they've moved in. There's nothing we can do. Is that what they did? Listen. The latter, that's the children of Seth. In order to escape from their contaminating influence, withdrew to the mountains, and there made their home. What do you think about it? Isn't that interesting? Now, if you and I had lived back there and we were the un under the influence of Seth and had gone along with Seth's program, when the Canaanites moved in, what would we have done? Moved out. Moved out and up into the mountains. So long as this separation continued, they maintained the worship of God in its purity. But in the lapse of time, they ventured, little by little, to mingle with the inhabitants of the valleys. Oh, what a picture. Do you see them? Do you see them? First, oh, they can't bear the thought of the wickedness, the idolatry, the blasphemy, the polygamy, the adultery, the fornication. And they say, oh, we must get our children out of here. And away they go up the mountains. And for some time, they maintain the worship of God in purity up there. But as time goes on, year after year, they venture. They venture. They venture. And friends, they didn't have radio and television back then. Today, you can have 
You can have all the, all the influence of Cain. You can have it right up in the mountains if you want to pay out a few dollars. But back there, they could escape. Thank God we can escape today if we're willing, can't we? But did you notice? They ventured little by little to mingle with the inhabitants of the valleys. This association was productive of the worst results. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. That's quoting Genesis, the sixth chapter and the second verse. Many of the worshipers of God were beguiled into sin by the allurements that were now constantly before them, and they lost their peculiar holy character. Mingling with the depraved, they became like them in spirit and in deeds. The children of Seth went in the way of Cain. They fixed their minds upon worldly prosperity and enjoyment and neglected the commandments of the Lord. You see the picture, friends? Ah, they got to thinking that they had to have all those things that the descendants of Cain had. And, of course, if they were going to have them, they had to get down there into the race with them. And so, little by little, many of them became contaminated with that awful influence. And now down here, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, he comes. And the Spirit of God comes upon him, and he cannot bear that thing. What does he do? He repeats the experience of Seth, my friend. He gets away from those abominations. He gets away from those idolatrous customs and influences. He says, I can't bear it. I can't bear it. I've got to get out and away from all this. I want to walk with God, and God is not in this sort of thing. I want to read you something from the commentary now. Volume 1. Page 1087. This is from the Spirit of Prophecy. It's from a manuscript Sister White wrote in 1900. You'll find it printed here in the commentary. And these comments on Enoch. Page 1087 of the first volume. Enoch did not make his abode with the wicked. What does abode mean? His dwelling place, his home. He did not locate in Sodom, thinking to save Sodom. Ah, friends, that needs some study. I hear a great deal of talk today, or at least more than I wish I did, about the idea that after all, you have to be in the world. That after all, you have to be in the world. After all, how are you going to save them unless you are? I suppose that Enoch heard that argument, but it didn't fade. It says he did not locate in Sodom thinking to save Sodom. Well, you say, Brother Percy, didn't he do any evangelism? Oh, yes, he was one of the greatest evangelists of the Antediluvian time. Well, how does this go together? It goes together just right, friends, when we let God put it together. I'm coming to the evangelist, but now I'm studying the separation separation. Enoch did not make his abode with the wicked. He did not locate in Sodom thinking to save Sodom. He placed himself and his family where the atmosphere would be as pure as possible. Personally, I think I need as much help as Enoch needed for it. In fact, if there's a way to get it, I need more than he needed. I don't have the strength of body or of mind or soul that Enoch had. Do you? Oh, if he needed that help to get away from the world and its wickedness and back up into the mountains in a retreat from all that. Friends, I needed it. I need it. My soul is at stake. I must get ready for heaven, for translation. And it's going to take something more than coming to the altar in a revival service and saying, yes, I believe that Jesus died for me. Now I'm saved no matter what else happens. Friends, it's going to take something more than that to get us ready for translation, isn't it? Yes, it is. 
Well, you know I believe in revival, and I believe in the altar call, and I believe in people being saved when they accept Jesus. I believe in all that. But friends, there must be a growth in grace. There must be a development of character that reaches the point of perfection where the seal of God can be placed in the forehead. And that is the experience that those who are translated will have. I must have that. I must have that. Enoch did not make his abode with the wicked. He did not locate in Sodom thinking to save Sodom. He placed himself and his family where the atmosphere would be as pure as possible. Do you know what I detect sometimes? I detect insinuations and attitudes to this effect. That, well, it's all very well, I suppose. You want to get back up in something like that. But some of us, we've got to be out on the firing line actually working with the world and saving souls. My dear friends, I'm going to come to that. Enoch's method of evangelism. But I say that God has not called any man or his family in these closing hours to lose their own souls in the effort to save others. Now we have All right. Now what did Enoch do up there? Why did he go out there anyway? Well, he went there to be separate. Separate from sinners, to get away from their influence. But that's only half of it. The other half is he went up there to be with God. His errand wasn't accomplished when he got out away from that ungodly influence. He went there to get something, not merely to get away from something. Listen, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 85. Distressed by the increasing wickedness of the ungodly and fearing that their infidelity might lessen his reverence for God, Enoch avoided constant association with them and spent much time in solitude, giving himself to meditation and prayer. Thus he waited before the Lord, seeking a clear knowledge of his will that he might perform it. To him prayer was as the breath of the soul. He lived in the very atmosphere of heaven. He entered into communion with God, didn't he? He walked with God. Oh, friends, see him as he goes. Is he walking? Literally walking. Is that how he got there? From the valley to the mountain? Oh, yes. There weren't any trains, nor automobiles, nor jet planes. He walked. And he walked with God. He walked with God. I want to take that walk with God. Don't you, friends? A walk that separates me from the sinful influences of this age which is as the antediluvian age for wickedness. I want to get up with God, don't you? No. I come to the next point. Enoch's evangelism. Enoch, we've already read, wasn't hurt. He went to the mountain, but he didn't stay on the mountain. All the time. Now, if you don't go at all, friends, you may lose your soul in the whirlpool, the cesspool of the valleys of sin, the cities of iniquity. But if all you do is get back up into the hills, the retreats, and become a hermit, I'm not even sure you'll save your soul, but if you do, friends, shall I put it this way, you'll be very lonesome. God never intended that you should go out and be a hermit just with the selfish idea of saving yourself. No. No. Enoch was a preacher of righteousness. And reaching an experience with God there in the country, he went down into these cities and he preached the judgments of God upon a wicked world and called men to repentance. We read it there in Jude, didn't we? And that's where he got the power, up with God. And he carried that power down into the cities and into these valleys where men lived in prosperity and luxury and vice. And he proclaimed the truth of God in trumpet tones. He was an evangelist. Now the next thing is the thing that got me studying this one. Do you know what Enoch did after he'd been back up there 
in his little home in the mountains and hills, and gotten an experience with God, and then came down to the cities, the plains, and preached the warning judgments of God. Do you know what he did next? Listen. I'm reading now again from this commentary reference. 1087. Enoch did not make his abode with the wicked. He did not locate in Sodom thinking to save Sodom. He placed himself and his family where the atmosphere would be as pure as possible. Then at times he went forth to the inhabitants of the world with his God-given message. Every visit he made to the world was painful to him. He saw and understood something of the leprosy of sin. Now watch. After proclaiming his message, he always took back with him to his place of retirement some who had received the warning. Oh, folks, when I saw that, I said, this is it. That's evangelism, my friends. Isn't it? What is evangelism? It's soul winning. It's proclaiming the warning message and saving some with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Oh, we need to have a sense of urgency, my friends. A sense of the fact that sin is a deadly leprosy, a devouring fire, an eating cancer. And we need, as we come in contact with men, with tact, of course, but oh, something more than tact, some earnestness, some love, some yearning, a sense that will help us to lay hold of them and pull them. You know, there's a word there that thrills my soul as I look at it, always, always. After proclaiming his message, he always took back with him to his place of retirement some who had received the warning. Isn't that wonderful, Frank? Yes. He expected to take somebody back. Brother, sister, do you? What is your job? Merely to warn people? Oh, no. Get somebody and get hold of them and get them out of that thing. After proclaiming his message, he always took back with him to his place of retirement some who had received the warning. Some of these became overcomers, thank the Lord, and died before the flood came. They weren't translated, like Enoch. They didn't go through the flood with Noah and the ark. But they were saved, they died before the flood came. But listen. But some had lived so long in the corrupting influence of sin that they could not endure righteousness. Oh, do you get the picture, friends? I see them. I see Enoch. He's been out on his evangelism. And he's coming home now. And I see his boy, little Methuselah. He said, oh, daddy's coming. He's got some folks with him. Yeah. And so old Methuselah meets them. And do you suppose that Enoch's wife and the children, do you suppose they had things ready? Do you suppose they said, oh my, daddy's always bringing people home and making more work for us. Do you think they said that? I don't think so, friends. I think it was understood all through that household that their job was to take hold of people. People that needed help to get saved out of that awful, devilish, diabolical, sinful world. And listen, friends. Do you think when people have that attitude, do you think that there's very much spirit in the home to want to get down there and have a good time down there in the valley? Oh, no. No. Going to town is not looked upon as a lark. It's looked upon as a mission. A mission. And a dangerous mission. Like going into a burning building to pull somebody out before the wall falls down and crushes them. Like launching out into the deep to save a drowning man that's already gone down twice. That's what going to these cities is today, friends, isn't it? God help us to sense it. Enoch did. And so he brings these people home. But watch. They stay there. They're there with him for several days. And I see some of them day after day. They drink in the spirit and atmosphere of that home. They attend the family worship. 
They eat for meals, and I wonder, friends, if the diet was just the same as they had been used to down in those cities. Was it a different diet? You know it was. And do you think that all the popular magazines were lying around for them to read? No. No. There's just a lot of things missing. But some of them, friends, as they got hold of that diet for the stomach and that diet for the mind, they began to open up and revive. And they began to see that this was life. And they said, Enoch, can't we get into this too? Yes, Enoch says, you can. That's what I pulled you out for. And they persevered. And they were saved, friends. Even though they died, of course, as men have died down through the years, they died in hope. And they'll be resurrected when Jesus comes and be in the city of God because Enoch pulled them out to his home in the hills. But some... Sad story, but it must be faced. Some had lived so long in the corrupting influence of sin that they could not endure righteousness. Couldn't endure it. Think of it, friend. They couldn't take very much of it. No. After they'd had it a few hours or a few days, they began to get itchy and fidgety. They said, oh, I've got to get back. I've got to get back, and I can hear their excuses. They come around Enoch, and they say, Enoch, you know, I appreciate your having me up here, and it's just been wonderful. But there's some things I've got to take care of back where I came from. And Enoch, he knows the symptoms. And old friends, it's a pitiful thing. As that man goes down the road, back to the plane, what does he want? Oh, he wants a cigarette. He wants a drink of whiskey. He wants some of that bloody meat. He wants some of that excitement. He wants those races. He wants those games. He wants that fiction. He wants that fornication and adultery that was filling the world at that time. That's what he wants. One or all of those things. And so he goes back to where he can get it, my friends, because it isn't up there for anything. It isn't up there. He can't endure righteousness. As the dog returneth to his vomit, so the fool returneth to his folly. Like the sow that was washed goes back to her wallowing in the mire. Oh, friends, is it pitiful? Don't we see it again and again? But oh, it mustn't discourage us. No, it mustn't discourage us. It must lead us to work with all the more earnestness and love. And remember, friends, some will persevere. Some, even of those who seem to be the most hopeless, the most degenerate, Oh, if we could just help them to quit looking at the things around them and look to Jesus. Jesus on the cross. Jesus in the sanctuary. And Jesus in his love revealed in these things of nature. Oh, friends, I'm so glad I don't have to read all I've been reading to you tonight and simply wish that there was something we could do about it. Bless your hearts, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Yes, it is, friends. It is. I want to read you something from this book evangelism. It's the book evangelism. Listen. Page 76. 77. 78. As God's commandment keeping people, we must leave the cities. As did Enoch, we must work in the cities but not dwell in them. Oh, I don't have to apply any of this tonight. It's all applied right here, isn't it? There it is. As God's commandment keeping people, we must leave the cities. May I put in parenthesis, let's be sure we don't take too much of the cities along with us, friends. As God's commandment keeping people, we must leave the cities. As did Enoch, we must work in the cities, but not dwell in them. God help us. The truth must be spoken, whether men will hear, whether men will forbear. The cities are filled with temptation. We should plan our work in such a way as to keep our young people as far as possible from this contamination. Personally, friends, I'm not interested in any field trips to take our young people in to see the sights and hear the sounds of these cities. I'm not interested in it. I don't think that's the kind of education they need. I think the less they have of that sort of influence, the better. I read again. The cities are to be worked from outposts. Work from what? Outposts. Is that the way Enoch did it? 
said the messenger of God, shall not the cities be warned? Yes, not by God's people living in them, but by their visiting them to warn them of what is coming upon the earth. There it is. We must make wise plans to warn the cities and at the same time live where we can shield our children and ourselves from the contaminating and demoralizing influences so prevalent in these places. Now we're told plainly that there should be church buildings in the cities, but our institution should be outside. I read. I read that in Country Living, page 31. Repeatedly, the Lord has instructed us that we are to work the cities from outpost centers. In these cities, we are to have houses of worship. Where? In the cities. Houses of worship. As memorials for God. Why? Why, they're life-saving stations. That's what they're for. But, institutions for the publication of our literature, for the healing of the sick, and for the training of workers, are to be established outside the cities. Especially is it important that our youth be shielded from the temptations of city life. Well, God helping us, friends, we want to do it, don't we? But now I come to this. And this is the lesson I want to bring to your hearts tonight. What? Do you see, friends, that it isn't enough to just get separated from sin and sinners and get out in the country? Do you see that? Do you see that it isn't enough just to live in the country and then go out and warn people. Do you see those two things? What's the next thing to do? Get hold of them and what? Bring them back. It's the only hope that some people have. Don't misunderstand me. There's some that may be able to be saved where they are. I'm not trying to limit God. But I'm showing you plainly from the word of God and the testimonies of his spirit that the only way to save some of these people is to pull them out. And that should be in our hearts all the while, friend, looking for people. Just looking, 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 like a shepherd's looking for his sheep. Jesus is looking. The eye of the Lord runs to and fro through the whole earth. And then, friends, the next thing is this. First thing, as I say, get separate from sinners. Get an experience with God. The second thing, go out and warn. Third, pull them in. You may not keep all of them. You lose some, but you keep some. And now this next, this is the thing I want to lay upon your heart. What are you going to bring them to? What are you going to bring them to? Is that a good question? That's a good question. What kind of home are you going to bring them to, brother, sister? Where you live? If you're a father, a mother... You are the head of a home. What kind of home are you going to bring them to? Or if you're not the head of a home, what kind of a home do you live in? Have you got any place to bring anybody? What kind of a place is it? You remember that when Jesus came back from the wilderness, the spirit of inspiration rested upon John the Baptist, and he said to his disciples as he saw Jesus coming, Behold the Lamb of God. And Andrew and John struck off after him. And Jesus walked along by the river. And knowing that they were following, he turned and said, What? What did you want? Ah, oh, they said, Master, teacher, where do you live? Where dwellest thou? Where is, where is your place of abode? We want to come and stay with you a while. And bless the Lord, friends. That very hour began a fellowship which never ended. Never ended. Oh, I ask you, friend, have you got something to bring people to? All Jesus had probably was a little booth down there by the river, that's all. He didn't have any palace. We must get entirely delivered from this idea that we've got to have some mansion or palace or at least some supposedly acceptable place. Anywhere where God is and a son of God is, is a place for somebody to get close to God. Isn't that right? 
And that leads me to this thing that I want to impress especially. I've mentioned what kind of a home have you got to bring them to. But the main thing, the very center and core of all that I want to ask you is, what kind of an experience have you got to share with them? Have you got one? Well, if you haven't, friend, get one. Get one. Get one. You can. Enoch did, and you can. Don't think it's something that you have to wait for years and years. Tonight, God longs to do things for people and to at once have them begin to share with others. Share with others what God has done. Oh, friends, let's be so busy getting something from God and sharing it with others that we have in time for a lot of worries and complainings, a lot of fears and discouragements, a lot of lusts and ambitions. Let's fill our time and our lives with this one thing. And it's like a coin with two faces. And the two faces are these. To get ready for heaven ourselves and to help get as many others ready before Jesus comes. Would somebody here like to say something right on the point? You speak out what God speaks in. Inviting us to share with him in his mission. And we come. Cleanse our hearts that we may help others. Separate us from sin that we may come in contact with sinners without being dragged down to death with them. Oh, plant our feet upon the rock that we may not slip away into the current. As we reach out that helping hand, hold us, dear Lord. Thou hast promised to do it. And we thank thee for it, just now. Work a wondrous work of grace in every life here. Forgive our past. Accept our present consecration. And for the future, hold us, Lord. But oh, do more than save us. Use us to save many others. And we thank thee for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. God bless you, one and all.